0: Well, the Greater Vancouver Zoo is once again open to the public. This after it was closed, after the release of the wolves from the enclosure on the property. There are still many questions about what happened to allow the wolves to get out, but what we do know is Tempest, the one-year-old wolf that was still at large, at large for the longest, was reunited with her family. That put an end to the 72-hour search for Tempest. Sadly, we know Chia, one of the The other wolves from the enclosure at the zoo died after it's believed chia was hit by a vehicle on one of the roads close by to the zoo so what does this mean as far as the future of the zoo and what people would like to see happen on that property emily pickett joins us now campaign director for the vancouver humane society emily thank you so much for being with us
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, What are your thoughts on how things unfolded and where we're at now with the return of the wolves, but the loss as well of one of those wolves at the zoo?
1: Yeah, so the Vancouver Humane Society, you know, we're very concerned about last week's incident of the wolves escaping from the zoo. And we are very saddened about the death of, of one of those wolves, Chia. We think that this most recent incident is really part of a pattern of concerning incidents that we've seen take place at the zoo in the last several years. We know that, you know, in 2021, a jaguar bit a zoo employee. In 2020, a member of the public raised concerns about an emaciated moose that they saw at the zoo, and that moose was later euthanized. And then in 2019, a black bear bit a a child, and that incident resulted in the child having to be airlifted to hospital in serious condition. So we think that all of these incidents really... Reflect a lack of adequate safety and protection for the animals at the zoo. But beyond the the high profile stories that that have made the news, like this one, we are also you know very concerned about long standing animal welfare issues at the zoo. Um, you know the day to day monotony and and the suffering that those animals experience, and that we've highlighted in previous reports, including our most recent report in 2019.
0: I know that Zoocheck, the organization, as well that that does exactly that checks on uh, wildlife protection and checks on on how zoos are doing they doing they have raised some of those concerns in the past as well one of the the main ones being a kind of a lack of space or a lack of, of stimulation for the animals they also noted that that some improvements had been made have things despite what you just listed off have things in any way do you think been improved at the zoo
1: I think there have been some improvements, mostly, you know, as a result of, of people raising concerns um, and highlighting some of the issues that we've seen in you know, over the years, but certainly there are the most recent reports that um, the Humane Society and ZooCheck put out still highlights a lot of outstanding kind of longstanding issues, including things like small and barren enclosures. Those have been things that we've been talking about for a number of years and throughout a number of reports. Um, and the issue with those those small enclosures providing very little opportunity to engage in natural behaviors and movements for the animals. And in fact, actually, that last report raised concerns about the the lack of complexity and the enrichment in the wolf enclosure specifically. And a major concern that was also highlighted, not just for the wolves, but for other species, was um, breeding of animals in in, captive, in captivity. But, you know, we've also seen ongoing issues of, of abnormal behavior in animals, um, such as animals chewing and licking the bars of their enclosure, lots of repetitive pacing along the perimeters of their enclosures. And a major ask that we've been wanting the zoo to to look at is the keeping of exotic species that aren't native to BC. And that, you know, if we just step back and think about it, they, they really aren't suited to BC's climate. So if we look at the giraffes, for example, they're their natural habitat is dry and arid with little rain. And that's quite different from, you know, the lower mainland environment.
0: Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, and the argument has been in the past that this is a way to expose people to these animals or to 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 show how they live. But, and I know in the past as well that you've talked about or your group has talked about uh, that a more sanctuary type setting would be preferable than a model where people pay money to come in and watch these animals in enclosures.
1: Yeah, so we've seen um, a lot of facilities, you know, move towards, Um, move away from keeping captive animal exhibits and and toward utilizing a lot of neat kind of new and emerging technology um, in interactive and engaging animal free exhibits. And and that's something that we have really suggested, not just to the zoo, but to other captive facilities, that this is an important way of, um, you know, engaging in, in education for the public, but that doesn't require keeping animals captive for the sake of entertainment. Um, so, we, like you mentioned, we do want to see these facilities move towards um, a rescue, rehab and release model and a sanctuary model. And we think that, you know, with that focus on, on native species that are injured, orphaned or in need, that this would give them a greater capacity to meet the needs of the animals in their care. As they would have, you know, a lot fewer species and a lot fewer animals in their care um, that they could really focus on.
0: Uh, this latest incident with the wolves being released, uh, the implication seems to be that somebody tampered with the fencing, whether it was the perimeter of the zoo and the enclosure or a combination. That's certainly what mm-hmm. was implied when we did get information from the zoo. Uh, if that's the case, then that would point at a lack of security, even though the zoo did say that it has beefed up security, uh, specifically after there was another break-in. I think it was 2008 when when one of the monkeys was killed during... During a break-in. Uh, is, is that another issue for you as far as the the animal welfare is one issue and how the animals are being kept in day to day but what about security and making sure animals are also kept kept safe from people who, who maybe think they're doing the right thing by letting them, them out or doing this uh, and are able to still get on the property and do this?
1: Absolutely that's a major concern for us is we think that this situation really raises questions about the zoo's ability mm-hmm. to keep the animals safe and as well through those previous incidents that we've talked about, you know, the ability to keep their employees safe and the public safe and we know it's not just this one incident. So, um, it's, it's concerning to us, obviously, for even just the welfare of the animals, if someone has bad intentions and, and can access those animals.
0: And have you had any response or when you put out these reports and ZooCheck puts out reports and makes concerns, do do you get a response from the zoo or do you see changes happening following them?
1: No, unfortunately, you know, we've put out with that most recent report in 2019, there were efforts made um, to engage with zoo management around the report and the recommendations, even prior to that report being released. Um, But we have not, you know, heard back from them and, as we can see, issues really continue to persist and so that's really led us to the point of calling on the province to change the regulations around wild and exotic animals in captivity. If the zoo is not going to make the changes, then we think it's up to the province that is in control of those regulations. And so right now we're actually encouraging BC residents to engage with their MLAs this summer. Uh, to let them know that the welfare of, of captive wild and exotic animals is a priority and that that change is really urgently needed.
0: And again, so is that a provincial uh, jurisdiction then, or is it, is it municipal in that do different municipalities and cities have their own rules about if not, maybe not, not only zoos, but individuals as well, keeping exotic animals.
1: Absolutely. It's, there's different levels um, of jurisdiction. Certainly. Um, we just think going right to the provincial level will, will create kind of a, a sort of consensus across the board and, and something that applies to to all facilities rather than just kind of uh, one location at a time. But, you know, there is precedent that we've seen in recent years around the keeping of animals in captivity. Um, you know, the Vancouver park board decision in 2017 uh, to prohibit the keeping of, of whales, dolphins and, and porpoises in captivity. So there are things that can be taken at different levels. Um, but we are just really hoping that the province—we know that the province has it on their agenda to to update some of these regulations that haven't been updated since 2009, and obviously much has changed since that time. So we think this is, you know, that they're looking into this right now is a prime opportunity to make these changes.
0: All right, Emily Pickett, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much. Emily Pickett is a campaign director for the Vancouver Humane Society. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW. Well, we wanted to find out how things have gone on this first weekend when we had the limits imposed for purchasing at BC liquor stores. Those limits brought in by the liquor distribution branch saying they needed to bring those in because of the ongoing BC GEU job action. Joining us to bring us an update is Jeff Guinard, Executive Director of the Alliance of Beverage Licensees. Jeff, thanks so much for being with us this morning. My pleasure. Uh, How are you hearing things, or what are we hearing about how things went this weekend?
2: Yeah, it was a tough weekend. Um, We are starting to see the impact of the BCTEU strike on our shelves. We're starting to see holes uh, where normally products would be. You're starting to see the displays having some empty cases, um, and customers are coming in, and for the first time, they're not able to get certain products that they want. Uh, and uh, I was out at a couple of liquor stores this weekend, and you could see the holes in the shelves, but also I was talking to some of the managers, and you know, one of the, the staff members came up to me and said, do, you know, do we know how long this is going to go on? Because they're starting to worry if they run out the of products that they're going to end up being laid off. So now we're in a situation where this strike, which has gone on for a week, is starting to have a serious impact on businesses and starting to really make employees worry about their jobs. So th- this is getting crazy, and uh, we need both sides back to the table immediately to fix this.
0: I would imagine, too, it's it's much more of an impact or it's having much more of an impact on businesses, on pub owners or restaurants and such that would go in and be making those bigger orders for individuals. I know even though we did hear from some people who were coming out of liquor stores saying, well, I I normally would buy this and they're out of this. So I had to buy something else. I mean, it's an inconvenience. It's not a, a huge, huge problem. But for businesses, it is a big deal.
2: Yeah, I mean, customers are just starting to notice the impact. And you're right, we still have products in the stores of beers, of wine, and uh, most of them are just shifting. And they've been fairly understanding when we're out of a particular product. But the real losers here are the 10,000 small businesses that make up B.C.'s hospitality industry. So they're the ones that go in and they, they sell more than three bottles a day of some particular alcohol. And, uh, yeah, they're they're trying to recover from the pandemic. This was the last thing that they needed. And all weekend long, uh, folks emailing me and asking me questions about you know, where they could source products or why are they doing this to my business. And they're somewhere between very really frustrated uh, and, and really nervous about what this means for them and their staff if they don't get products in in the next week or so.
0: Uh, what does happen then? Because at this point, as far as we know, uh, there aren't talks scheduled. In fact, the BCGEU has escalated action in that yeah. uh, bringing in a non-emergency overtime ban.
2: Yeah, that, that's really frustrating as well. I mean, uh, I, I don't have any perspective on the strike. I and mean, They certainly have the right to strike and do whatever they feel they need to do. But they don't have a right to disrupt a $15 billion industry of 10,000 small businesses and 200,000 employees. I mean, we've been consistently saying it all last week get back to the negotiating table, find a fair deal. We're upset at both sides in this that have continued, but all I know is that when our members are trying to source products, they can't because the BCG are standing out in front of the warehouses that supply 40% of the alcohol in this industry. And the longer this goes on, the more serious damage it's going to do to our economy and the small businesses that make up our industry.
0: Uh, do you feel also that uh, as far as the choice of job action, this is something the union could do? And I, I get it. The union says it's not us doing this, doing this. It was the liquor distribution branch. They're saying, well, we had to because of the job action. It's not an essential service in that it's, it's not as though it's putting anyone's life at risk directly because of this. But like you said, it's the livelihoods. It's the, the possibility of layoffs. Uh, do, do you feel that you're kind of caught in the crossfire in that the union has obviously chosen this for first job action to get attention?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Our our members and our businesses in this industry absolutely feel caught in the middle of a dispute that has nothing to do with us. And you can imagine how frustrating that is after facing two years of losses throughout the pandemic. We a labor crisis in this province. We have 95% of the hospitality industry can't even get the workers that it needs right now. And now we're dealing with this. You know, I can understand the BCG strategy. I mean, if you think of the provincial government makes over a billion dollars a year of profit off of the alcohol industry. And most of that profit comes from the products that flow through those warehouses. So the BCG was making a point there. They're also not standing in front of their own stores, not standing in front of their cannabis stores. The public isn't seeing it as much, right? So it feels like, is a negotiating tactic, but now no one blinked in the first week, so they're ratcheting up their pressure, and this is going to get worse for our industry. And We're going to feel like we're still caught in the middle because they're not even at the negotiating table. I mean, as far as we know, no one has sat down on the two sides and negotiated in over a month, and that, to us, is absolutely insane.
0: And when you mentioned too, you're right, they're not in front of the stores, they're not kind of in in the public eye. When you talk about that number, the 40% of all alcohol going through this avenue to go through, obviously the government's not going to give that up because of the profits that you mentioned, but does it show a flaw in the system in that so much of it is dependent on government distribution?
2: Yeah, there's there's plenty of solutions that we need to look at after this strike is over. It's hard to make changes in the middle of this, this, 'cause I'm sure it would antagonize one side. But you know, I'll give you a, a quick example of the kind of thing you, you, we should do is all of those ready-to-drink products like nudes and neutrals, you know, vodka sodas and Hayalls. Uh, those are, are manufactured here in British Columbia, oftentimes by a craft producer, but they have to go through those warehouses. When a local craft brewery or a winery is able to direct deliver products from their facility directly to a public or restaurant or bar, we have, we have direct distribution on that, but not on these refreshment products. Those are the ones, that's the reason you're seeing those are getting out of stock first at private liquor stores and pubs and bars. So we could fix something like that very easily uh, and just take some of the pressure off of them. When we get through this, there's a a series of other recommendations we're going to have for government about distribution, but it's certainly pointing out the difficulties of having all of your alcohol going through one distribution center.
0: And because it does seem and we only have about a minute left, but it seems like there was progress made during the pandemic as far as wholesale prices and other issues that that so clearly there is it's possible to to fix things like that.
2: Absolutely. I mean, we've uh, worked quite productively with government throughout the pandemic and before that and afterwards to make a lot of necessary changes to the industry. And they've stepped up over and over again, offering wholesale pricing and, you know, more flexible patios and licensing issues and all that's been great. Um, The challenge right now is because of the BCGU strike, we're eroding some of the benefits of those, as our industry is now struggling financially again, and there's no reason for this to happen. Both sides need to get back to the negotiating table immediately and fix this before this goes on any longer. It causes more damage.
0: All right, Jeff Gwynard, thanks again so much for coming back on and bringing us this update. appreciate your time this morning.
2: My pleasure. Have a safe day.
0: You too. That is Jeff Guinard, Executive Director of the Alliance of Beverage Licensees. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi this week. Well, some electric vehicle drivers say it would make a lot of sense to make it easier to charge vehicles. They're asking for more fast charging stations as well as an easier payment system. And joining us to talk more about this is Harry Constantine, president of the Vancouver Electric Vehicle Association. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, so what, when we talk, let's first talk about the payment system and this call for a credit card tap system. How does it work now if somebody is going to one of these stations and charging their vehicle?
3: Yeah, so just to, to kind of set the scene a little bit, we are talking primarily here on at um, fast charging stations, so on those long-distance routes where you're only staying for um, 10 to 40 minutes. Um, currently we have kind of a hodgepodge of, um, privately issued, uh, cap to pay cards, um, which you have to get mailed to you. And it's only valid for that one network or, uh, and what most people do is they end up with about 12 apps on their phone, uh, to activate the, the charging station.
0: So it can be a little cumbersome. I would guess if you're going to different stations and and it's a different way of payment or a different app for each one.
3: Yeah, as more and more companies come online, uh, we're, you're in current state, we'll need more and more applications in order to to get that on. There are some companies where you can activate, um, they have agreements and you can activate each other's charges through the One app. Um, but yeah, you have to get your phone out. It could be raining. It could be uh, like Britton Creek rest area, for example. There's no cover. Um, it, it could be snowing. You're trying to plug in the car and you go get your phone out to activate the charger. Um so if you have data, that's over well and good. Um, but if you don't, then you're kind of dependent on uh, having to order a plastic card for the company, which if you're at the charger at the time and you don't have it, then you're you're you could well be uh, really struggling to, to get that activated in the rain.
0: Are there other places then I would imagine that have uh, figured this out or made it easier as far as pay by credit card or an easier way to pay?
3: Yeah, well, when we look to EZO, to we look at other countries that are a little bit further ahead when it comes to electric vehicle charging infrastructure. BC is by far a, a leader in uh, in uh, Canada um, and and the world, but in other places, uh, like the UK and uh, Europe, there are uh, countries where they've mandated that it has to be a tap-to-pay. It has to accept your regular old credit card tap-to-pay, just like your, your fuel pump, and... Um, At at a regular gas station, you go to a gas station, you wouldn't expect to have to pull a a phone app and only be able to pay out through a phone.
0: Right. Okay. And you mentioned as well, so these are private companies that run a lot of the charge stations in different companies. So is there a difference then if uh, an electronic vehicle driver is going to one of these private company pay stations as opposed to, say, a BC Hydro charging station?
3: So BC Hydro ones are often uh, based on the back of, of other um, companies. And, and BC Hydro Network, when you look at where they've positioned their charges, it's absolutely fantastic and enabled so much travel throughout the province. Um, but no, it's essentially the same. The BC Hydro have an app too. Um, they have a card which gets delivered to you pretty quickly. Um, but it's the same thing. You have to load money onto an account and activate it through through an app.
0: And are we talking? Then is is this a bigger issue then for people who do more of those long haul drives, as opposed to somebody maybe who can find other places within their city or their community to charge?
3: Yeah, if you're trying, there's kind of two two different types of charging. There's the day to day charging, uh, and most people eventually will be able to. Charge at home, and there's legislation and work being done to to make sure that that infrastructure is in place, uh, particularly in those multi-unit uh, residences that we that we have so many of in the lower mainland. So that's the, that's your day-to-day charging. What we're talking about here is those those long-distance routes where you are um, you could be traveling from here to Kamloops. Say you, you might need to stop. You'll probably need to stop in Hope, maybe in Merritt, um, to charge up. Those have fast charging stations and they all all rely on um, on an app of some kind.
0: And uh, and like you say, too, if you've got a dozen apps or you're dependent on your phone, I mean, I I guess the irony there could be your phone could your phone battery could be dead, too. And then you're not able to charge your car.
3: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. If we're all we're all tied to our phone anyway. But if we're tied to that for for getting to the next town, it, it becomes another issue.
0: How many vehicles are we talking about or do we know how many electric vehicles there are currently in BC?
3: The the number changes so rapidly that uh, I'm, I, I wouldn't like to to guess. It was um I believe it was 17% of vehicle set of new vehicle sales um recently. Um which is was a substantial and right now the the charging infrastructure um is just about adequate um and we're kind of at the mercy of the, um, the supply chain shortage, um, the supply chain issues that we're seeing worldwide. Um, but more and more companies are coming online with charges as well.
0: Right, because it would appear or would seem that that's just going to continue as far as that number going up and these vehicles becoming more and more popular.
3: Yeah, yeah. As, as more and more um, companies uh, bring on charges, um, like the Parkland Group, uh, the On the On The Run company are opening up um, charges soon. Uh, I believe on Vancouver Island they're starting, and then they're going to kind of tackle the major routes in BC. You know, we're it's a, another another network um, that will likely require a, another app um, to to do that. Yeah.
0: And so, have we gotten over kind of the the. Um, fear that people might have or that the anxiety over charging not having charging stations and now it's more over how do you pay for it and kind of the convenience of that
3: yeah it it really is and when we look at the the term uh, range anxiety and and where that kind of was coined from was first kind of coined from the oil industry if you look at how much uh how much range you get in an electric vehicle these days um people are always surprised when i say i get four or four for nearly 500 kilometers, and people are like I only get that on a tank of gas. Mm. Um, so now it's really a case of um, the density of those charges, especially here in, in the lower uh, in southern uh, British Columbia. In northern British Columbia, we there isn't that density right now, and that, that's another another issue that's that's out there. But um, in the in the kind of southern British Columbia, really, it's a case now of we have the charges to enable us to get to the majority of places without any, without any issue. Um, and then as more vehicles come, uh, online, we need the charging to keep up with that. And so far it's, it's keeping up.
0: And is that too, I mean, that range sounds great. Is that also weather dependent though, whether you're driving in the winter versus summer?
3: Oh yeah. Weather dependent, um, heat dependent. Uh, a lot of cars use resistance heating, um, which when you've got a gas car and you take a little bit of heat off the engine and things, it doesn't make that much of a difference, but uh, it can have a a negative impact on an electric vehicle because it's really inefficient way. More modern cars are using heat pumps and are way more efficient. Your tires, your tire pressure, um, you know, I I get four or 500 kilometers in my car without really thinking, without really having to uh, drive to the speed limit. uh, I always drive to the speed limit um, without without really having to um, think like I need to drive efficiently, if that makes sense. Um, So if you drive efficiently, you're going to get more. If you drive um, like a boy racer, then you're going to go, you're going to drain that battery really quick. Uh, Not really quick, but a lot faster than you would.
0: All right. Well, interesting updates on this and uh, the need for uh, maybe an easier way when it comes to paying at those charge stations. Harry, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much.
3: Thank you. Have a great day.
0: You too. That is Harry Constantine, the president of the Vancouver Electric Vehicle Association. If you want to join that conversation, again, give us a call on the buzz line 604-331-BUZZ. You can email me jill at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW.